I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a really sacred episode. My guest for today is Judy Rabinor, and Judy is an eating disorder therapist and also the author of the book, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. This book is a powerful read for anyone to understand the dynamics of the mother-daughter relationship. Judy brings us into her own life and also talks about the lives of some of her clients and their relationships with their mother and daughter. It's really powerful. And what I would like to do is I would like to dedicate this episode to my mother because she is a very, very sacred soul to me. So, all right, everyone, let's get going. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am sitting here with this unbelievable soul across from me, Judy Rabinor. Judy, welcome to the show. Karen, I'm delighted to be here. Delighted. I I couldn't be more thrilled. And Judy, you and I were talking a little bit before the episode started. I might be a little emotional in this one. And also, emotional is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm saying I might be emotional. This episode is about the mother-daughter relationship. You have your book is uh, forgive me, everyone. I'm not sure if this has come out before, or after. I think after the the book has just come out, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. Judy. It was amazing. Please tell the listeners about yourself, what you do, things like that. Okay. So I'm a psychologist and I'm in private practice now on Zoom. I used to be in Manhattan. I think I'll be back in Manhattan shortly. And I've been working in the field of eating disorders for decades, decades. Uh, I now also teach writing and you can look up my writing workshops on my website, which Karen will tell you the name at the end of the show. And uh, I'm the author of three books, I am proud to say. The first book is A Starving Madness, Tales of Hunger, Hope, and Healing in Psychotherapy. The second book is Befriending Your Ex After Divorce, Making Life Better for You, Your Kids, and Yes, Your Ex. And this is my third book, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. Judy. I I cannot tell you what this book meant to me. Um, and, you know, I listeners know I talk about Sylvia, my mother, all the time. Everyone knows Sylvia. I have an incredible 
incredibly, incredibly close relationship with my mother. It is also a mother-daughter relationship that comes with a lot of complexities. And so your book was vulnerable and raw and truthful and all of these things, also talking about your own life with with your ex-husband and fiancés. I don't want to give anything away. I, I feel like I already am. So Judy, where do we begin when we talk about the mother-daughter relationship? Well, you used the the word complex, and the other word that I use all the time is complicated. It's complicated, and I think if I were to rewrite this, or if I was to give this book a new title, it would be, I love my mother, but, because I feel I've heard that statement from patients, from friends, from relatives, and the complexity of the mother-daughter relationship is, is really, and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming because the mother-daughter relationship is so important, right? It's so important. And one thing that I notice often from my clients is they are afraid to talk about some of the negative aspects of the relationship because they don't want it to like, quote unquote, look like it's a bad relationship or look like I don't love my mother or look like my mother's a bad person. And I say, we need to bring the whole, the whole relationship into the room. And there's no relationship that is, is free of complexities. And again, especially this relationship. And so I always love to honor the, and again, I keep using the, the, the complexities and the beauty, the beauty of the mother-daughter relationship. And sometimes I don't even know if we can recognize that if we don't look at the whole relationship. What was it like writing this book? Let's start there. I began writing this book decades ago. And in 1983, I was getting divorced and my mother-in-law was getting remarried. She had been divorced. So I'm getting divorced from none other than her son, right? And we were very close and she was miserable about, the, about me getting divorced from her son. But in any event, and she came to my house and she told me these wild stories about her life when she was divorced. And I'd started writing another book, which remains unfinished in my computer called Between Marriages. And it was about her activities as a divorced woman. And I was going to write about my activities. And I wrote two chapters in a writing group about my mother-in-law. And then I switched and started writing about my mother. So that's how long I've been writing this book. Little vignettes, little snapshots. And by the way, that's what I recommend to anybody interested in writing. You know, write some snapshots, write some vignettes, and you'll eventually try to weave them together. Well, you also, forgive me for interrupting, you weave together in a really beautiful way client narratives as well. This is not just a book about you and your mother. This is what you've noticed in all your years of doing work with clients that have come in and what clients have like, quote unquote, been hungry for, you know, in their eating disorder, when what they're hungry for in their relationship. Also, what you see when a mother comes in with their daughter into session and what you what what you get a glimpse of. So 
I, I also said to you before the podcast started, I don't know if you're a better writer or, or therapist because you're great at both, but my gosh, the book is so well done. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to come back every week. This is what I need. This is good for my <laughs> self-esteem. What was it like writing this book all these years? What what came up for you? And can you share some of the some of the things you talk about in the book that you want readers to have a glimpse of? Well, w- one reason I wrote this book, and I don't think I knew that until I really started writing it, is I was in in a state of turmoil because I loved my mother, but I loved my mother, but, and there were so many stories I had about things that she did that were inadvertently hurtful. And I'm using that word deliberately, inadvertently. And I thought, how could she have done this? And how could she have done that? And how could she have done the other thing? And yet I love her. And I was the child. My mother had dementia and Parkinson's at the end of her life, and I stood by her um, big time. It was a very sad end to a very lively woman's life. But um, so that's what I was trying to put together. How is it possible to love someone and be so angry at them at the same time? And I think I know why that was a dilemma for me, because my mother, and I wrote this in the book, she said her parents were perfect. Over and over again, she told me she had perfect parents. I'd say, mom, how could they, what about when you were a teenager? Didn't you ever have any falling outs with them? I mean, weren't they ever angry at you? They were perfect. I don't remember bad things. She'd say, you know me, I don't remember the bad things in life. But as it turns out, that was not a bad trait of hers because she had a lot of hardship in her life. But I think I felt particularly perplexed because if my mother's parents were perfect, how come I didn't get a perfect parent? And I didn't. Well, now I understand that nobody gets a perfect parent, that I don't know what that need was in her to be Miss Pollyanna Sunshine and have everything always fine and her parents being perfect. But it left me wondering what kind of person am I that I don't think my mother's perfect. And I really believe now that is what motivated me to write this book. And by the way, that's a really deep, if that can even touch the surface of this, that is a deep internal question. What kind of person am I if I'm questioning that I don't feel like I have a perfect mother? Judy, that is huge for a daughter to come to terms with? You know, frankly, it's something about your energy that um, facilitated me thinking deeply on air because that's the first time I've ever put this together in exactly this way. Uh, I've thought these thoughts, but, you know, to put it together this way, I felt what was wrong with me that I'm holding on to these grudges and glitches and traumas. And I use the word trauma also deliberately because a couple of things that happened were traumatic. I mean, she was not a cruel or a damaging person. I actually believe that I grew up in a pretty functional family with its own idiosyncrasies. We don't really even know what a functional family is, correct? I was going to say, if you find one, I'd like to, I'd like to meet them. It's true. We don't. 
know what a functional family is. We don't know. I mean, we know a lot about dysfunction, but we don't know enough about function. But anyway, I feel like my family was not particularly dysfunctional. It certainly was idiosyncratic. I had a mother who played by her own rules, but that is an idiosyncrasy as opposed to uh, a major dysfunction in my book. But it's interesting. We don't know that much about what defines the functional family, and we know so much about dysfunction, right, Karen? Well, not only that, we we learn so much more about ourselves and the way, I'm going to say parents, our parents what's the word I'm looking for, the way they parented us or whatnot, as we get older. Because Judy, this is the thing that I loved about your book. And I've used this example before. I would have clients when I used to run Montanito, we had a, we had this one assignment that, that we had, the clients had to do called a life map. And they went over their whole life and, and a client would come back for like the fifth time. And they're like, oh, I brought my life map. And I'm like, nope, you need to do it over because you have a different relationship to that narrative than you did the last time you were here. And Judy, I feel like that's what the readers get. Watch you go through as you open. I believe the opening was when you were going to your cousin's birthday party. Is that the opening? I forgive yes, me. Yes, that's the beginning. That, by the way, and I don't want to give anything away, everything about that whole experience. I, I brought tears to my eyes and as, because I thought of you as a scared young girl. And then as we learn throughout the story, that's what your mom was told to do. And I'm not going to give any other information about it because I want people to read it, but your mom was doing what doctors told her to do would be in your best interest. And that's a pretty big realization, I think. Tremendous realization. And and the fact is, back in the 50s, that is what people did. They didn't go to the internet and look things up. They did what the doctor told them. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think parents did it. And, did, and by the way, I don't want to speak for your mother, but don't want to show any fear to you because at the time, were you eight? I'm, forgive me, I can't. Remember. I was eight. You're yeah. Right. So, so you're not going to show fear to an eight-year-old. So that makes it even more traumatic. And I know we're being very cryptic here, everybody, because I'm not talking about the exact story. I'm doing this on purpose. But that, that makes it even more confusing for a child to not understand some of the reasons why parents are doing things. Also, not understanding, especially in the mother-daughter relationship, that uh, the mother is also subjected or subject of her environment, the, you know, the, the whole society, the diet culture, all things like that. And, you know, my, my mother, who, again, she, she's amazing. I, I can't say enough about her. My mom was also a woman in a diet culture. And my mom dieted when I was much younger before I started my eating disorder. That's not, I don't blame my mother that I had an eating disorder, but I grew up in a diet cultured house. And so that's one of the things, like I say to clients, I want you to bring it all in because we're not blaming the family system. We're just trying to understand it, which actually can take away some of the anger that you have towards your mom. Well, I completely agree with you because one of the things that happened to me in writing this book 
is, you know, writing forces us to slow down and we live in such a fast paced culture. And I wrote the sentence and I looked at it. My mother was born in 1918, two years before women had the right to vote. And that fact shaped her life and the women of her generation in a way I never understood. And that is the truth, Karen, that I knew that fact from the time I was a kid, but it's only now that I think my mother grew up in a completely different climate. A doctor told you to do something and you didn't go double check on the doctor. You just followed his instructions. And I, you know, so I love what you just said about you know, having the clients make a new map of their family each time they come back because our understanding of our own families changes and expands. If we're conscious, that's what we hope, that our consciousness will expand. How did you come up with, when you were doing workshops, you wanted every person to identify themselves as, you know, I am, and I I think you said, like, I am Judy, I am the child of, I think your mom's name was Peggy, forgive me, I can't remember, um, the cheerleader. I think it was, so say a little bit because I thought about that and I thought, wow, that just sort of made me think about my life differently. When I think about how would I, how would I introduce myself in that way? So how did you come up with that concept? I I can't, I, I can't say exactly, except that I was very, very influenced by feminism uh, and by the idea that everything that has to do with women was really devalued, including motherhood. And the idea, I'm Jewish, the idea that boys were bar mitzvahed and girls in my day did not get bar mitzvahed. I mean, a a rare girl had a bar mitzvah. And why was this? Why were there all these ceremonies honoring boys and honoring men? And I just got this idea that what would it be like to have a ceremony that honored women? And if I say, I am Judy, daughter of Peggy, I was welcomed to womanhood by Peggy, captain of the cheerleaders. It just rang a bell for me. And I've done that workshop for 40 years. And I just love it. I can't imagine what what you get from that workshop and what the participants get from that workshop. And, you know, again, slowing down and saying, wait a minute, what did my mother experience? Like, just as you talked about not being bat mitzvahed, it didn't even, I, listen, I'm very aware of like how things have been changing throughout our lives, but I was bat mitzvahed and I had a regular Sunday school and Hebrew school class. So it didn't even dawn on me that my mother came from a generation where her brother was bar mitzvahed. She and my aunt were not. And what was my bat mitzvah experience like for her seeing it? Like there's so many ways of looking at this, Judy. It's completely true because my daughter was bat mitzvahed. And I remember sitting in the back of the synagogue watching her study with the cantor who was also a woman and me thinking there were no female cantors when I went to Sunday school. When I went to Hebrew school, I never saw a female rabbi or cantor. Now they're plentiful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Are you noticing any kind of a theme when it comes to your clients that are struggling with eating disorders and the relationship with their mother? Is there a theme or is it like we talked about complex, complicated, many different facets? Well, I is there a theme? The theme that I notice is not really about the mother. It's really about um, being cut off from their internal worlds and not being able to tap into their emotions and not being able to tap into their and express their feelings and their needs. Uh, I'm sure you would agree. Absolutely. That, and often they have learned that from their mothers, unfortunately, because that's just what our culture is about. Women are rewarded for being caregivers, not for taking care of themselves. The idea of self-care is a brand new concept in the last couple of decades, right? But women were rewarded for taking care of home and hearth and children. And my mother taught me, when your husband comes home from work, put on your lipstick. I mean, that feels crazy, right? That I was supposed to be home and looking pretty, that that was the most important thing, that my husband wanted a pretty wife. And then pretty translated into thin. So that's what women were supposed to do, take care of others and be an ornament. Yeah. Yeah. And tapping into what your own needs are, your own hungers. I mean, this is to me what is really at the root of an eating problem. And yes, often girls do learn that from their mothers. You you talk about also, I want to point out, you were a bit of a... Mm, risk taker, I'm going to use that term, when you were a younger therapist doing things that you were like, I don't know if anyone else is doing this, but intuitively it feels right to me. You had clients bring, or you brought like starting the one with the apple. You I don't remember if you had, a, but you intuitively knew if I just give this person space, comfortable, safe, whatever it is, they're going to feed themselves. This is what they're hungry for, right? And say a little bit about that because you were a little bit of a risk taker back then. I was a risk taker and a rule breaker. That's yeah. exactly right. And that ties in with the girl in the red boots be because I had a mother who actually, she was a risk taker, but I didn't know that at that time. I didn't think of her that way. But- this, the, the title comes from the first incident with my mother where she took me after I nagged her to death to go buy a pair of red boots. And the next morning she got up and she said, where's Judy? I'm four years old. And she looked outside and there I was riding my bike up and down the sidewalk, wearing my red boots and nothing at all. Nothing else. Nothing else. And she, she thought that was adorable. She didn't yell at me. She didn't say, oh my God, you left the house, you're punished. No, she thought that I was a very rambunctious, high energy child. And she loved telling stories about how, I, how high energy and rambunctious I was. So when I started becoming a therapist and I had this one particular patient who wasn't eating, I thought, how am I going to get her to eat? She doesn't want to talk and she's losing weight. And then it was like, ding, what if we ate together? And of course, now you know that now talking about 
eating and eating with patients is part of lots and lots of programs, both inpatients and outpatient, right? But it wasn't then, I don't know, I just did. And I had a friend who I told that I was doing this. She said, don't tell your supervisor, we're not supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be analyzing dreams and talking about the family. But I told my supervisor, and he is now a dear friend of mine. His name is Bill Davis. And I hope you're listening, Bill, and hear all these good words that I say about you. Judy, and then you went farther and went out to a bagel shop with this client. So you took it out of the therapy room. Yes, exactly. That was another thing that was very daring. And it was very meaningful. It was very meaningful because this is something she used to do with her parents before they got divorced, go to this bagel shop. And me going with her, I mean, if I think about it now, not only did she pick a bagel, which was a giant event, but she saw that you can go to a bagel shop even if your parents get divorced. This also shows how how food is so emotional in our lives, how there are you know, what started as a really positive memory, her going to this bagel shop with her parents, then unfortunately became almost a memory of grief because her parents are no longer married and not wanting to go to that bagel shop. And so, I mean, food is so, there's there's so much that is involved emotionally when it comes to food and our relationship with our parents. Exactly, exactly. And so she learned was learning that her hunger for connection could be met even by a therapist who was willing to break a rule. I broke a lot of rules with her. I've written about that patient a lot. One thing I had her do was journal a lot, journal, and she loved writing and she would fill up 25 pages, uh, you know, between sessions. And she loved that I wanted her to read to me from her journal. And so she learned that there were other ways of being nurtured. And that's a big part of eating disorder therapy, helping people learn how to nourish and nurture themselves and learn that there can be other people that will nourish them. Yes, absolutely. The other thing that you talk about in the book is how we as therapists get such a different or or almost like an inside look when we bring the mother or parents in. And one of the examples you talked about was a set of parents that you were trying to get in and because they were so busy with work and whatnot, and you realize like, wow, this is just a small slice of what this young woman is experiencing in her own home. And I think you said she probably feels like an inconvenience. Something to that effect. I apologize if I'm, I'm paraphrasing. No, no, no. You got it exactly right. I felt like I was an inconvenience. Like I was, they wanted me to fix their daughter. Yeah, yeah. They And, you know, from the beginning, I got it that what a child really wants is to feel cared for. You know, I once heard a man who I admire a lot named David Treadway. And he said, therapists should never forget. Blood is thicker than therapy. And I understood that to mean what we're supposed to be doing is helping our patients bond with their families. That's more important than the bond with us. The bond with us is also important, but helping them bond with their families when the family is available is a beautiful gift and very important. I also want to say, and this is not an easy part of our job, but also helping 
the child. And by the way, I'm 51 and I'm still my mother's child. So when I say child, I'm not talking about any particular age. But another part that we do is accepting what helping the the client accept and people hear me say this all the time, acceptance still comes with frustration and disappointment and sadness, but a level of, okay, it's not going to change. Us trying to help the the client understand it's not going to change no matter how hard we try. So now what? How can I help you from this point? Because starving yourself, binging and purging, binging, that's not filling the void. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's again, the word complicated just keeps, keeps coming up. I love that you mentioned the word acceptance, you know, helping people accept what it is they got and what it is they didn't get. And it's never black or white, never black or white. Yeah. There's something I'm actually going to quote you if everyone can give me a second, because there's another thing about acceptance that, that I, I think is very interesting. And this is what you write in the book. And you write, our mothers are our first teachers. Regardless of whether we imitate them or rebel against them, we internalize their essence and it shapes us. As conscious adults, we can choose which part of our parents we want to imitate and which parts we want to discard. But when we're children... Our early identifications, positive and negative, are not conscious. That's a powerful statement, and it's true. This is going back to your experience. I I loved, I, I was holding my breath when, when your mother found you outside riding your bike with no clothes on, your little red boots, because I thought, oh gosh, how is she going to respond? And your mom responded beautifully she's so rambunctious as children i think almost every moment counts in a child's little soul of how how they feel they're being seen in the world you you can you can do it differently do it is not right i apologize but you can see it differently as an adult and say i don't i don't want to take that part but as a child if your mom had yelled at you judy shamed you, said, why aren't you wearing clothes? Imagine what that would have done. That's the difference between young people and then us growing up and becoming adults and choosing how we want to be in relationship with our parents. Did that make sense or did I just go off on No, 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 it made sense. And it made me think, you know, right, you never know what, how a child is going to digest their experience in the family and so two children I mean we know this now that we're adults if you have any brothers or sisters at holiday time if you reminisce you have different memories it's like a friend of mine just said my brother and I grew up in two different families or at least we have two different memories of who my mother really was so so many things shape us right not only that we I, I always say, so I'm the youngest and the only girl, which that in and of itself, we need to write a book about what it's like being the youngest and the only girl. And you have how many, how many siblings? And all? I have two older brothers. And so we're all three years apart. And so you mm-hmm. realize all three of us experienced my parents at our own developmental stages, but my parents were in different places in their life. So 
like for example, my oldest brother and and I I'm probably going to get this wrong, but there was a time when before my parents started a business, their own business that my father was a chemist and had a really a really solid job and what all this stuff. My oldest brother, his toddler and adolescent years were under that sort of like low stress. My dad worked, it was the time my mom stayed at home. Then fast forward, my parents decided to start their own company, which adds a lot of stress. So when my brother and I were going through those developmental stages, there was different stress. There were different finances. My mother was now working. My parents were now working together. There's so many things. My mom talks about, and to this day, it is, it is something that breaks her heart. And I, I wish I could change it. When my brothers were bar mitzvahed, my parents were very comfortable financially. When I was bat mitzvahed, my parents had just started a company and had minimal finances. So mine was significantly different than my brother's. Wow. The interesting thing is, Judy, I didn't even think about it. Mine was a pool party at the YMCA, which I thought was the greatest thing in the entire world. But from my mother's concept, it hurt her to this day. She still says, oh, I'm still trying to make up for the bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. We, we all grew up in the same family, different experiences. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting that your mom is still trying to make up for the bat mitzvah. You know, we carry these experiences with us. So, you know, your mom felt like she didn't do good enough. And when we, as a as children had experiences where we felt we were not given enough, we carry those with us. And that's what we try to help our patients come to, right? And figure out what is really driving the eating disorder? What is it that's underneath? You know, I always say the eating disorder is the tip of the iceberg and underneath there are emotional issues. And we have no idea what those emotional issues are. And that's what really certainly one thread of the therapy is to help the emotional issues come to light. Another thread is to help the patients stop with the destructive behaviors, which they think are feeding them, but are not feeding them. They're really damaging them. Yeah. Judy, I can't remember if you even had in the book, but you know, you're one of the few guests that have been on the show that hasn't experienced an eating disorder. And I'm wondering how you got into working with this population because you have been doing it for so long. Well, I have two things to say about this. The first, so when I got my first job at a graduate school, I worked in a local clinic on Long Island, which is where I lived and where I've lived throughout the pandemic. And the first patient that was referred to me developed anorexia before my eyes. So we have this clinic meeting and the, the, my soup, the boss says to me, we have this 16 year old girl and you're the only one who has any experience with adolescence. So you take her. So I said, okay. And there I am. And before my eyes, she develops an eating disorder. And I thought this was fascinating. And I went and started taking a, I joined a group that was studying the Center for the Study of Anorexia. It was called in Manhattan. It's now called the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia. Bulimia wasn't even in the DSM-3, which is what we had at that time. And, um, but even though I never had, so I know I never had an eating disorder, 
But I mean, I feel that body dysmorphic disorder is kind of like rampant. Like I understood what it's like to think that losing five pounds is going to change your life, even though my left brain tells me losing five pounds means nothing. But my right brain could easily say, won't I look better if I lose five pounds? So there's a like a, a, a gray level of disordered thinking about your body and your weight that is pervasive in our culture. It was pervasive in the family I grew up in, in the town I grew up in, in the cultural milieu in which I was raised. So I found this fascinating. Here, are the, I everybody I knew wanted to lose weight, but I had never met anybody who wanted to get down to 68 pounds. Yeah. And you know what? As you were saying that, I do remember that in the book. I remember when that that happened. So did you, this is, I'm going to like totally change directions a little bit, but, and, and please don't feel obligated to answer anything you don't want, but did your mother know while she was alive that you were writing this book? That's a great question. Uh, the answer is no, I wasn't writing this book. She knew I was a writer. She did not know. And I've asked myself the question, would I have published this book if she was alive? And would you like to know the answer? Yeah. I don't know. I think the end of the book, obviously, I make peace with my mother and I write about how I loved and admired her. But I tell a lot of things about her that I might not have written if she was alive. I mean, how would I feel her coming to a book party and me having kind of told a lot of these stories? So I don't know that I would have written it if she was alive. And my son asked me the same question because I also wrote about his father, my first husband, who was not alive. Um, and I don't think I would have written some of the things exactly the way I wrote them if either of those two people were alive. However, in the end, I, I wrote another book called Befriending Your Ex After Divorce, Making Life Better for You, Your Kids, and Yes, Your Ex. And in that book, I praised my ex-husband and I praised the way we co-parented together. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying anything negative about someone you love or even about yourself. I certainly admit my own shortcomings. Yeah. I admit my own shortcomings in the book. I mean, I say grief has been my teacher and taught me that I had a limited story about my mother. My story was a limited story, and we all have limited stories. In fact, I had that highlighted. Isn't that your last chapter? Yes. Which is, I'm telling you, Judy, I highlighted this whole book. I so love that you love the book. I know, you remember everything I say. It was the very end of the book. Yes. Say a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Well, I don't mind. I just don't want to give it away. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, tell everyone about the last page of the book, Judy. <laughs> right. I don't want to give everything away, but but the truth is, I, I can say this easily, that for most of my life, I felt that my mother was a Pollyanna type of woman who would rather make a jello mold than read the diary of Anne Frank. And I held that against her, that she didn't want to read the diary of Anne Frank, which I read probably eight times growing up. And I identified with Anne Frank, even though, of course, I knew I was a privileged girl living on Long Island, not growing up in Amsterdam in, in, uh, with the terror of the Nazis. 
But I was wrong that my mother had got a second wind after her second husband died. And she went on to surprise me with some of the decisions she made about her life. And I saw that my mother had her own spark. I mean, there was a line in the book that I love. It says, as long, there's a Jewish saying, as long as there's a single spark, a great fire can be ignited. And my mother was supposed to go to college. And instead of going to college, she got pregnant and got married. That's the beginning of a chapter of her life. Um, and she, after she had lost two husbands and she was in her 50s, she said, I'm not too old. Life is going to begin again for me. And she made some new plans. She made new decisions. And I was in awe. And I admired her. I actually use a similar saying with my clients that if there's a the teeniest little ember, teeniest little light, I don't care how light it is, great. We've got an in on life. Like here it is. We're going to keep fanning that flame. And that's what it reminds me of. Right. I know. I also, didn't you at some point in the book, like you and your mom were in school together, you were in your PhD and she was in school. And I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable, remarkable story. It's a remark. That was a remarkable moment. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we could introduce our, our friends to each other. And so I had friends from graduate school who knew my mother and they didn't know her as the mother of like eight-year-old Judy, you know, or a 16-year-old Judy. They knew her as the mother of like 35-year-old Judy. It was very interesting. Well, it's interesting for me as an adult. My mother is 81. Oops, sorry, Sylvia. Going on 25. And sometimes my friends are like, what's your mom doing tonight? I'm like, um, hello. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're my friend. Like, literally, like, it's a whole, it's it's interesting. My mother and I were having dinner a few weeks ago, and I said something about joining me with something. And she's like, well, do you want to just do it alone with your friend? And I said, mom, we're at this, like, great stage in our life. We're, like, we're we're adults, we're friends. We I'm friends with some of my mother's friends. She's friends with some of my friends. Like it's a it's a really really beautiful precious moment that when I was a little kid I never imagined I would be like this. I I just never imagined what life would be like when I got older. Well, you're making me laugh because I feel the same way. My daughter and daughter-in-law have friends who I feel now are my friends. I now play um pickleball with one of my daughter-in-law's friends. We were going to all start playing. And then my daughter-in-law decided she didn't like playing pickleball, but I did. So I play now with her friend. Yeah. Yeah. And my mother and I have the same temperament and we like the same things. And so I think it's funny. I actually, I, I don't think it's funny. I think it's amazing. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for my relationship with her. And again, complex complicated, but beautiful and strong, a really, and, and, and I, I feel privileged to say that because I know a lot of people can't. So Judy, I don't take that relationship, the, the relationship I have with my mother for granted. I don't. Well, the reason I wrote this book is I wanted to help all the people out there who say, I love my mother, but and as I started on when we started the program, I said, I'm sorry I didn't name the book, I Love My Mother But, because that would embrace a large number of people. 
And uh, I feel so lucky that I now, after writing this book, can say, I love my mother and. Yes. And so that's what I got out of writing this book, that I love my mother deeply. And my mother gave me many good things. And just as you said, she was a product of her generation. And I'm a product of my generation and have missed the boat in certain ways with some of with some things in terms of my own parenting. That'll be the next book if I get into that. Judy, how many books are you going to write? I love it. We don't know. We don't know. I love writing. Fantastic. I love reading them. So so keep writing them. So keep writing and you keep reading and invite. And we'll talk about this again another time. This was really, it's fun talking to you about this because you have such a deep appreciation for the complexity of the mother-daughter relationship and how right alongside of love can be anger and resentment and annoyance and a whole lot of other things, right? Yeah, yeah. Judy, it, it, it has been a pleasure. We're going to end in a moment. Is there anything else that you want to let listeners know or I didn't ask you that you want to say on the show? I love being a therapist. I really don't want to retire, but I've also gotten into running writing groups and I'm going to run a writing retreat this winter. As soon as the world really opens up enough to make you know, a commitment and get a plan together. Speaking of that, before we end, I read either in your bio or whatnot, you have taught at one of my most favorite places, which is the Esalon Institute. Oh my God, don't you love Esalon? It is. Love it. When when I saw that, I thought, oh, I wish I was there for Judy's workshop because that would have been the ultimate. Having being taught by you at Esalon and just that, wow, that's all I can say. Well, maybe I'll teach a writing workshop there. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what my next goals are and yeah. that's on my list. Judy, it has been a pleasure. I do have to ask you one question before we end. And it has nothing to do with the book. It has nothing to do with eating disorders. Judy, I know this might shock you, but if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh, what a funny question. Are they going to write something positive or negative? Judy, whatever you think they're going to write. Maybe they're just going to write girl in the red boots. I was going to say that. I want to be, I want a pair of red boots. Where do I get them? And that actually, you said that you have so many pictures of you in the red boots. So you and I were, were talking before. My, the, the artwork for this podcast is me sitting on a couch wearing these big red boots. I love that. And my gift to whatever anybody wants to write on a bathroom stall, I hope their message to whoever comes into the bathroom next is get your red boots. I love it. Get your red boots. There it is, Judy. All right. Again, from the bottom of my heart, Judy, I can't thank you enough. It has it has been an honor and a pleasure having you on the show. It was totally fun. Fantastic. All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewised.
dc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody. Be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>